Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Jane Graff, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Mercy Housing. Based in Denver and operating nationally, Mercy Housing is one of the country's largest nonprofit owner, developer, managers of affordable housing in the country. A disclosure before the interview Mercy Housing is a client of Terra Search Partners. Jane and I have worked closely together on multiple assignments over many years. We enjoy that special kind of relationship for a consultant advisor like me, which is really to dig deep with an organization and help them strategically over the years. You'll probably hear some echoes of that kind of relationship in the conversation. We've done a number of podcasts on the affordable housing crisis in the country, each bringing a different perspective. You'll hear it from Jane, but what's always blown me away about Mercy and Jane's perspective is such a deep commitment to not just housing, but improving the lives of its residents and to helping lead the overall nonprofit housing sector, which is such a critical part of the ongoing housing puzzle. Jane is a great leader and a great CEO, and as I'm sure you'll discover on the podcast, a hugely delightful and warm person who will make you smile, laugh, and cry as you think through these tough challenges. I hope that you enjoy the episode, and as always, please share the episode with friends, rate us on iTunes, and feel free to contact me with ideas and feedback at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Enjoy the conversation. Jane, I want to welcome you to the Leading Voices in Real Estate podcast studio here in my office in San Francisco. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Matt. And thank you for the conversation. Uh, For our listeners who don't know who you are, uh, Jane is the president and CEO of Mercy Housing. It's a national nonprofit housing organization, one of the top owners of affordable housing in the country. You have 325 properties, 23,000 units under management. Mercy's been around for? 36 years. 37 years. Let's see, it's 2018, 37 years. 37 years, and you've been with the organization for? Uh, About 30 of those years. Okay, so we're going to have a lot to talk about today. (laughs) And in context, as as we do on all these podcasts, we'll talk about you, Jane. We'll talk about Mercy and your leadership of Mercy. Um, And then we'll generalize it. And today it's particularly interesting because, as I've said on other podcasts, this is the first time in my life that every time I read the New York Times, there's a headline story about housing affordability. Not affordable housing, not subsidized housing, but the general issue of housing affordability. And this is what you've dedicated your career to. Yeah, it's changed. There's no doubt about it. I can remember back, um, I guess it was in the late 80s, we were all moaning, those of us in this business, about right. how nobody nobody had it on their radar screen. Little did we know. Not only would it be on our radar screen, but it's you know, a, a, a you know, much bigger issue than I ever anticipated it would be in my lifetime, that's for sure. And one of the things that we talked about earlier today is um, it's on everyone's radar screen and it's on it's in everyone's face in a way that it never had been before, particularly with homelessness. We thought we had been making some progress, and then bam, it just feels like um, homelessness has exploded. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you and I were talking earlier about my trip from the BART station to the office in San Francisco and sort of right. cataloging what that's like over the course of the 15 years I've, we've been in that office. 
it's just startling uh, what you see on the street today that you didn't see even five years ago. So it, it's a it's a problem that's really it feels like it's bigger than all of us. Mm-hmm. And and even. In the mission where your office is, which 15 years ago when I first went there, that was a neighborhood one was cautious about. But that part of, and, and the neighborhood has gentrified concurrently, but then the level of homelessness has concurrent with the gentrification increased. Yeah, I mean, we're really not in the mission. I want to make sure we're really in the south of market Fair. Um, in the San Francisco office, which is, you know, clearly different. But yeah, there was no housing there when we right. started out. You know, the housing there has really increased dramatically. It was a very different neighborhood, um, and of course, Twitter is you know sits right there, and all these high-end retail locations that you know we have a, a Republic Bank branch. <laughs> Republic Bank. <laughs> yeah, in our in our <laughs> right. in our um, uh, neighborhood, and uh, you know this is all brand new, and you're, and the homelessness is just it's way worse than it was in the early days when we were in that neighborhood. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a huge problem. Um, mm-hmm. There certainly is a lot of need for the kind of work we're doing. Well, let's actually start at the beginning. So I'm all curious, right. Jane, how you got here, where you grew up, what the Jane is a ten year old and people would say, well, she'd become a person dealing with low-income housing. I, I don't think so. So where did you grow up? What was family like? What kind of community did you live in? And what? I grew up in Minneapolis. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm a Minnesotan. I went to the University of Minnesota for undergraduate and then went to University of Oregon for graduate school um, and made my way. That was the trajectory to, you know, to come out um, west and have been out in west since the late 70s. So um, but I started in affordable housing in Minnesota, uh, and my and my focus was really through the eyes and lens of working with people with developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. So I started, um, you know, after undergraduate, went and worked in a little town uh, in Minnesota, and started working with people that were developmentally disabled adults mm-hmm. that were at the time in what we called a sheltered workshops. I don't, I don't really know if they use that term anymore, but that was the term of art at the time. What's a sheltered workshop? It was a place where a person with limited intellectual capacity could go and learn how to do a job. Mm-hmm. And some jobs were in the, in the workshop, and they were sheltered jobs where you were actually working in that location. And some got training to then go out and work in a you know, regular job in the community. Uh-huh. I did job placement. So I worked with these uh, individuals, helped place them in jobs, and so then two things happened. They'd get a job, and they would, and they were always, you know, very limited in, you know, minimum wage, whatever. So they'd get this job, and they'd lose their benefits immediately because now they were working. Right, of course. And they'd lose their benefits. And then the next thing that would happen is they'd lose their housing. And I thought to myself, this is really bad. This is a really bad system. (laughs) This doesn't make any sense. And I became, you know, aware of the fact that the housing was more important than the job because mm-hmm. once they lost their housing, then that the gig is up. Nothing works at that point. It was a really awful system. And so I became very interested in the housing issues of people with developmental disabilities. We started working on some pretty creative things in the little town I was in to, you know, to deal with it. Right. And I decided this is where I really want to focus. And I went to graduate school with a focus on how do we, how do we deal with the housing needs of people with uh, disabilities. 
and uh, after graduate school. And was graduate school a planning degree, or was no, it No, it, it was at the time. Um, you know, there was, in, in back in that day, this is in uh-huh. the late 70s, there wasn't, you know, you didn't go to graduate school for a degree in affordable housing finance through a planning school. I mean, right. it didn't exist. Um, nobody, you know, nobody was doing this work. Um, mm-hmm. f- you know, uh, affordable housing really wasn't a concept in the same way. It was mostly assisted housing through Section 8 and big private owners. You know, that was the name of the game. Right. So um, I went, and it was it was public administration, focusing in on, that was my degree, and I focused in on affordable housing, you know, as a little subset of, of that degree right. and worked on it specifically from that angle. So, finished graduate school, went to work for the Association for Retarded Citizens of Oregon, which we now call the ARC. They're mm-hmm. all over the country. There's an ARC here in okay. the Bay Area. They are the advocacy organization for people with developmental disabilities. And started, and essentially my job was to figure out how do we address um, the housing needs of this population, mm-hmm. especially as we were deinstitutionalizing them across the country. That you know, they they'd spent years in terrible institutions, you know, right. cloistered and shunned away, um, and we were closing those institutions. And so now we have a housing need. How mm-hmm. are we going to address it? And, and were you doing that to come up with programs and policies, or were you doing that to? build housing in a specific place. I, I was looking at it from a very practical, how are we going to find housing opportunities for people? Building it, buying it, owning it, doing whatever we had to Got do. It. So I convinced, so I went around, this is my mm-hmm. favorite part of this story. So I was pretty young back then and fearless. You know, who, what did I know? You're still I knew, fearless. Uh, yeah, I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing. I didn't know what I should be afraid of, which is really a gift. Right. It's a total gift. We can see it in many places today as we look at the youth. And I, I, and I thought, okay, w- w- there's got to be an answer to this. We have to figure out. Somebody's got to do this work. You've right. got to be able to uh, provide housing for a population of people that will always be in poverty. We're talking about folks that some can work, some cannot, but no matter what, if they're not working, if they're working, they're working at very low wage jobs, right. and otherwise they're on. They're just on subsidies. They're on public benefits. And when their parents pass away, that's exactly right. Then who? What, oh, where? It's, it's a huge issue, and it, you know it's very compelling. And mm-hmm. you know, for those of us who've been in that field, we all know what the problem is. Right. So, so I went around talking to people in public positions about, you know, it was the head of the housing agency for the state of Oregon and, you know, the city people and whatever they were. I can't even remember all the places, you know, policymakers and said, you know, we need to address this. And what do you think about a nonprofit um, that would do this work? Because somebody's got to do this work. And every single person I talked to Mm -hmm. said, oh, no, this is not where any nonprofit should work. This is the work only suitable for for profits. It's way too complicated. I was so angry. Yeah. I just became enraged. And I finally figured out I'm going to do this anyway because, you know, and I would say to this policymaker, well, so, you know, how are you going to do this? Are you going to take this on? Are you going to take this on and make this happen? Because this is a real need and we have to address this need. And they'd say, well, there's really no money for that. And it just enraged me. Mm-hmm. And you know, anger is a very good, good. thing when it's focused. Right. <laughs> so I started an organization. I convinced three or uh, three um, 
advocacy organizations that really do support people with developmental disabilities. That was the ARC, and then it was the Epilepsy Association and um, the United Cerebral Palsy Organization in Oregon to co-sponsor an organization called Specialized Housing. And we just launched ourselves into the work. I had no idea what I was doing. How old were you? I was, well, let me see if that was, just like 27. Okay, at 79. Yeah. Okay, cool. And, uh, you know, betw- I was under 30. Let's put That's it that And I just decided that I would start this organization. I had really great people, you know, working with me to do that. Created a board, and the board had one of everything I needed. So it was a land use attorney. Um, a commercial real estate person, a title company person, a developer, a construction person, you know, just like amass this group. Right. And they taught me how, they just taught me the business. You and learned I it think, all. You know, well, what you, you, that was the way you learned. You just got in there and you did it. And, you know, the organization thrived and then I came to California. Before you came to California, how much did you build? What did you accomplish? Oh, God. I mean, that's a hard... And, and make it up. It's You know, we yeah. could be kind of like five of them, ten oh, no, of them. Oh, no, 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 no. All across the state. All I mean, I don't the... know. There were probably 40 or forty or 50 that was small apartments and group homes. I mean, we also were doing right. policy things. We changed, we changed policy in the state of Oregon so that we could, without any land use... Um, um, approvals. We could do small group homes of five people and less. Right. And, and that's really what we ended up doing. So I was buying real estate all over the place. Uh-huh. And then there would be organizations that were operators that were actually, they operated services for people and they would come in and um, master lease these properties, specialized for housing. For profits would, and nonprofits or no, all nonprofits? No, pretty much all nonprofits. I don't. I don't think we ever worked with any for profits, but we they uh-huh. would master lease and then operate them using Got the it. program dollars that were available through the state. Uh-huh. So we provided a great service, which was we'll do the real estate side. Uh-huh. We'll figure out how to make this affordable. We used the two the HUD two hundred two program extensively. Right. Um, and it, it was it was very successful and it was incredibly needed. Let, let me ask you a question. This, a funny question, but. You've since then you've done affordable housing for your whole career. Mm-hmm. Then you were doing affordable housing for people who were deve- developmentally disabled. That's I, right. I get tongue tied with this. I, I think in the current political world, the thought of poor people getting government subsidies is a charged up question. But the question for developmentally disabled people being supported might get broader. Like everyone wants that to work. Did you find a difference in the way that either communities or funders felt about that difference? Well, on one level, probably yes, and on another, no. Yeah, it wasn't a, the the need and the worthiness question. Uh-huh. Right. I know it's um, what complicated. Essentially, but. is what you're you're alluding to was probably easier. Mm-hmm. Although I think people then felt like, wow, how do we how, how do we deal with this over the long haul? So right. that that's one question. But the question of acceptance, neighborhood acceptance and NIMBY, oh, Hard. off the chart. Off the chart. Fear, enormous fear. I mean there's fear around anybody that isn't like you. Right. And um, the fear of, of um, you know a, a a group of people that had a disability living next door or down the street or whatever, we had a sure. lot of that. That was a huge issue. And and just as big and problematic as uh, any land use problem that I've ever had in any location. Got it. 
Fair deal. So, so then you take this organization you'd started, you're building these homes all over the state, and you moved to California. That's right. And I came to California um, because my husband got a job and was transferred. That was great. And I was ready for a challenge in a bigger place. You know, Oregon is a lovely place, and it's very small. Mm-hmm. And um, I tend to be um, more energized by larger urban environments. So when I came to the Bay Area, it was just, I, I, I couldn't, I was like, I just loved it. <laughs> it you know, it's just like the bigger, the better. Uh-huh. Um, in Oregon, you can be, you know, you're sort of a big fish in a very little pond. Got it. Um, so I came to um, California. I didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. Did not have a job, and uh, was doing consulting work for uh, various organizations up in Oregon as I did that sort of transition, and then started looking for work, and um, and I ended up at Catholic Charities running their housing department. And many people who who are listening to this might know Bill Rumpf, mm-hmm. who is um, now works for Mercy Housing, but was at the Redevelopment Agency, was at the City of San Francisco, working for the Mayor's Office of Housing. He was at California Housing Partnership. Um, Bill's been around, and he, you know, and then he went up and worked for the City of Seattle. Uh-huh. Bill had the job that I took in. No. Yeah. I yeah, should yeah. know that. Okay. So it's very fun because uh, I took his job and right. then Bill came back and started. Now he's working for me. So it's, you know, there's a moral in that story. You mm-hmm. know, be careful who you, what you say about anybody because they either you could be working for them or they could be working for you. It's <laughs> so, a big lesson for one's entire that's life. Right, that's right. Um, Don't burn a bridge. But I, you know, so I stepped in to um, Catholic Charities in San mm-hmm. Francisco, which had this little housing department. Uh-huh. Uh, and I started running that uh, operation. And in large part, we were doing um, housing that was for uh, seniors, using the HUD-202 program almost exclusively. Right. And Catholic, so two questions about this. One is, you're not Catholic, so let's get that out of the way. Whether this matters, it doesn't matter, but I always find it fascinating because people, I was on the board of the Jewish Home of San Francisco, and most of the staff wasn't, right? So that's how these things are all the time. Right. But you still care about the goals and the objectives. Well, I, I have to say that the reason I was attracted to Catholic Charities uh-huh. was really because of the sort of social justice focus yeah. of of the church, not the other parts of the church. It's really more the social justice parts of the church, which are compelling when you see them in action. And so um, that was really – and I'd had some exposure. My father was Catholic, so it wasn't as it's if close. there was no Catholicism in my background, <laughs> but I was not raised Catholic. Fair enough. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was it was an easy fit for me. Uh-huh. And um, so – and what did they do, and then how did that what, – what did you learn in the big city – with the big organization, and how did that come to Mercy? So my favorite, my favorite thing was um, the very first deal I did in San Francisco uh-huh. um, that was handed to me by Bill was um, a, a, a property called Sarah House, which is on the corner of Fulton and Fillmore, and, and it was a and it was for people with um, mobility uh, problems, wheelchair bound. It was it was basically. Um, designed for people that were uh, in wheelchairs. And this was in the redevelopment area, although it was before redevelopment was giving any money to housing. Right. And so this was Bill's legacy to me. He basically handed me this deal that had, a, you know, at the time, a $250,000 hole, deficit. 
Now, I thought $250,000 was the end of the world mm-hmm. because the most money I'd ever put into a deal in Oregon was like $20,000. And so I, I just couldn't get around the multiple factor of, you know, we went from 20000 to 250000 It was just like mind-blowing to me. And I'll remember Bill looking at me and saying, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Of course, he'd gone to the mayor's office of housing. So he basically made sure <laughs> that this you deal got funding. funded. But it was just, you know, that that was the um, the difference in size and scope. And, of course, who would have ever imagined um, what it's like today? Where we are today. You know, this, right. Nobody would have ever gone there in a million years. Um, but that 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 was a huge a huge piece of that learning. Mm-hmm. So I I took over that portfolio and and of course then very soon thereafter this was um, came tax reform. I mean mm-hmm. I took the job in 1987, right? Uh, and tax reform had just had just happened, and so we were just learning about the low income housing tax credit program and 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 basically just left you know just stepped right into it because we didn't know any better right? Um, and just figured it had to be done and it was a source and why not? And this is the beauty of youth, right? Mm-hmm. You, wh- what you don't know can't hurt you. And, um, and you know, so you just go into this stuff blindly and, and it, you know, and the rest is history. Well, it's another uh, part of the history because if you then take 30 years going forward and you say, okay, this, this particular program came up then. Yeah. I was in D.C. at the time when it was, I was watching it get invented in the, you know, in the in the boardrooms of different organizations, yeah. but um, but then that's been the theme through your history at Catholic Charities and then certainly at Mercy. That's what has driven development. Oh, yeah, no question. I mean, I think the interesting thing is so, you know, tax reform. We started getting into um, tax credit transactions, much more complex, a lot more risk. Right. Um, for an organization that really is a social service organization right. that works um, on, you know, real serious poverty questions. So here's this organization uh, that is really owned by the Catholic Church that is being asked to step into this very complicated real estate world. And they right. kind of freaked out. And uh-huh. it was like, wow, we, you know, we've amassed this, you know, 15 property portfolio over the course of time and now you're asking us to get into this this stuff really um, with a lot of risk associated should we really be doing this and that's when Mercy Housing sort of stepped in and said we're prepared interested and willing um, and you know it's like two Catholic partners right lots of overlapping board members uh-huh. um, it was the easiest and most seamless merger you've ever seen, and I've been through a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like it took 30 minutes for the two boards to come together and decide that that the whole department of housing department within Catholic Charities would just pick itself up and move itself into Mercy Housing. Literally a 30-minute conversation. <laughs> I mean, there'd been a little prep, I'll agree, but, but the formal meeting right. was 30 minutes long. Wow. Um, and that happened in like 1992. And and the rest is is that that's when I you know I came into Mer- to Catholic Charities in eighty seven, which was then merged into Mercy Housing in in nineteen ninety two right. ninety three. And you merge into Mercy. What what was Mercy? Where was Mercy headquartered? And was there a difference between one Catholic organization and another philosophically or organizationally? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that's a charged question. Um, 
Mercy was a small, small organization at the time, uh-huh. based in Denver right. then, but really quite small, and run almost 100% by sisters, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, mostly Mercy's, Sisters of Mercy, various Sisters of Mercy in various locations. Right. Very few people with any real um, background in real estate. I uh-huh. sort of was the first person that came in that really had a real estate background and actually did this work. Um, instead of, you know, the, the philosophy at Mercy Housing was um, sisters will respond to an emerging ministry. And so I, I used to refer to it as have none will travel. <laughs> and so they would just like plop down in locations, find uh-huh. a desk, find somebody to pay for all of their supplies and their phone, and then just start working. And they're fearless, completely fearless, had no idea what they were doing, totally fearless, and they'd get it done. I mean, that's that's basically how it, how it goes. Right. Um, and and that's where Mercy was at the time. And so there was, a, you know, there was a nun up in Washington, and there was a nun here in the Bay Area, and there was one in Sacramento, and there was one in Omaha, and there were a bunch of them in uh, various other places, you know, around. And it was all sisters running these, um, these little haphazard um, – uh, right pieces of the organization and they're not real estate people they're social justice and social service people doing these but what you're doing is both social services and on the other hand you're doing these complex real estate yeah, transactions I mean, you know you have to remember these sisters they have developed and operated very complicated businesses which they would call ministries over the years you know they started out you know first of all they came to this country based on need um, from all sorts of places, whether it be Ireland or England or France or wherever. The sisters. sisters. I'm talking about the sisters. And when they came, they came and they started, you know, schools. It was education or health care. And they built these institutional responses to need. They built big health organizations, huge. I mean, they're merging all over. There's major health organizations, Uh big institutions of learning all over the country. And they know how to not only start something, but then, you know, really create an an institution that can carry on the work um, way beyond their capability. And they're really good at it. They are Mm -hmm. very good at it. And they're completely fearless. And they will put resources to it. You asked the question earlier, Uh what was the difference between where I came from at Catholic Charities to where I went at Mercy Housing? And the difference was dramatic in terms of resource distribution. The sisters realize, it's my experience, Uh that you really have to put money behind this work in order to get it to go anywhere. And they're not afraid of that risk. They are willing to take it, and they do it, you know, with gusto. Um, now, they don't spend a lot of money on themselves, but they spend money to make things happen. Um, mm-hmm. And they're willing to take significant risk. On the other side of the church that I would call, you know, where Catholic Charities resides, which is really the, you know, the the priests and the hierarchy on that side of the church, they're way more risk adverse. You know, they're used to, they're running um, the Catholic school system and they're running the parishes. And so they're much less... Um, willing to take the kind of risk that the sisters um, are willing to take. So I, we have to go there a little bit because I'm, I'm t- <laughs> I am so curious um, about this. I, I don't think as a common citizen walking around the world and not being very familiar with the Catholic Church, I think of sisters. Of course, I think of the flying nun. I think of 
priests. I think of the news headlines, unfortunately. And what I have learned through knowing you for a while is, and you're using these words, so sisters are fearless, they're entrepreneurial, they're risk takers, and they build big organizations. And they're all about social justice. Those are words that you... Absolutely. So help me reconcile that and then what that means. And they're executives of huge organizations. Oh, yeah. I mean, this group of sisters that, you know, they're very well educated. Most Uh of them have multiple degrees. They take their work incredibly seriously and at the same time recognize that, you know, not much good... Um, comes of this world without this kind of investment and the right. willingness to to do it. And, you know, yeah, you're right. It, they're they're kind of like in some ways the um, best kept secret in because it's not, you know, most people's experience, I think, with sisters is a Catholic school. Right. You know, Rules elementary school right. in large part. Yeah. And it doesn't go much beyond that. Well, mm-hmm. they're running major hospital systems. Right. Um, they're running big universities. Uh, they're doing incredible work um, across the world, and and you know, in terms of um, you know refugee resettlement and and all, all the horrible things that are going on in in war torn countries and and working in those spaces, they're just phenomenal. And they yeah they're they're inspiring. They're incredibly inspiring. And uh, you know I get the benefit of that every day, having worked mm-hmm. with them and watched them in action. Mm-hmm. Last question on this because we could go down the rabbit yeah, this hole. Is this is a lo- question, yeah. but I'm just so curious. But is is it a population that is? De- Increasing and aging, and and are people coming into that world? There are some people. There are some people coming in, but yeah, there's. It's not like it was back in the fifties and sixties when these when every year the class, the entering class, was large. Um, That that's those are days gone by. But these women are are very methodically um, preparing for that, Mm -hmm. and that's part of what's going on within Mercy Housing in terms of our governance and preparing for the day when the sisters will not play such a major role, but their legacy and sort of the spirit of how they do the work, that we, we're not going to lose that. And, and it's not, and, and they're the first ones to say, we don't own, we don't own this spirit. Um, you know, we're, we're humans like everyone else. Right. You know, our partners out there, and then I would be one of those partners and any number of others can do this work in the same way, and they do. And so it's really all about um, understanding and recognizing that spirit, that legacy, that history, and thinking about how you're going to instill it in the organization for the long haul. And we're, we're heavy into that um, work right now. And I'm confident, and they're more confident than probably any of the rest of the lay people on the board, that, that that's something that we'll be able to do with uh, great success. Cool. That's an amazing story. So tell me, tell us, since there's others out there listening to this, um, run through in a long high elevator speech <laughs> of the growth of Mercy and what it's done nationally and how you've attained size and scale and a national footprint in this organization. Oh, my. Big question, but yeah, you've done a um, lot. So uh, maybe some of it has to do with our, our model. Uh, which I think has created a lot of the success. Uh-huh. So we have a model, and it started out. I I was not I wasn't kidding. It was have none will will do housing, and they basically would just find a sister who was located in a lo- you know somewhere, right? Because they're all over. Who would raise their hand and say, "I want to do this work," and then would start that effort. 
So there were lots of little offshoots. And as time has gone on, we've um, and we recognize that we're in a business, mm-hmm. um, affordable housing is very local, very, very local. And the resources you have to gather are very local. And the issues are local. And so we l- learned early on that creating um, local affiliate organizations that could do the work um, and could attract the right um, resources was the way to go. So we started out in California. There were multiples in California. We condensed it down to one. Mm-hmm. Omaha was actually the beginning place of Mercy Housing. It just happened to be because a sister was there. And so she was in the, the that, excuse me, not Omaha, Idaho. Oh, my goodness, I almost, was Boise and Napa, Idaho, uh-huh. was the first location, which you wouldn't have imagined as being right. the big problem area for affordable housing. But there, you know, there's, yeah, fair amount of poverty there. And then it was Omaha and, you know, I mean, in Washington. And so we sort of went in various places. And over the over time, and then we started our property management effort. And that was in, I want to say, um, you know, early 90s, which okay. when, when we really decided to get into property management. And so it all sort of was incrementally, you know, so you add on, add on, add on. Um, California, because there was a stronghold there with, we'd already been doing the work within Catholic Charities, and I brought with me a group of seasoned developers that, you know, became part of Mercy Housing, boom, just like that. You know, right. one day they weren't, the next day they were. So I think, uh, you know, expansion through acquisition of other organizations as well as the organization that I was in really has made a huge impact on our growth over time. There's been numerous examples of that. Um, Give a few. So you did Seattle, So Chicago. No, it was, we, Seattle was not an acquisition. Seattle, we actually went up and started working in Seattle with a mm-hmm. bunch of sisters that were already up there. But, you know, in California, we weren't in Sacramento. So we – and Rural California Housing Corporation became part of Mercy Housing back in, like, 2000. Mm-hmm. Then we went to Chicago. In Chicago, it was um, Lakefront SRO, which was a not-for-profit working in Chicago just doing homeless housing. And they became part of us in like 2004 or five. I can't remember exactly. Sacra, uh, um, Santa Cruz Community Housing Corporation was failing, basically, but recognized they weren't going to be able to sustain, and they affiliated with us. So there's been an, – and then we had took a large portfolio just this past two years, which is Franciscan Ministries, which is um, the housing work of the, of the Franciscan Sisters uh, in Chicago, in Wheaton, Illinois, Chicago area, Wheaton, Illinois. Mm-hmm. They basically um, closed their doors and handed their entire portfolio and all to Mercy Housing to sustain and to continue. So these are huge, right. huge uh, ways in which to expand. And, and over the years, we've sort of settled in to these various markets. There's five markets where we're active, right? And um, and that is a and and we have active organizations in those markets that are really there to establish. I mean, they're they're organizations in their own right with boards and staff and a, you know a president that is really there to make sure that we're responding to the community, we're, we're using the resources that are available to us, we're fundraising, we're doing all the things that you would do as a board, and the things that we do as a national organization right. are, you know, all the back office support, the, the HR, the IT, the finance. We're one organization um, in many ways, and we're separate organizations in many ways as well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use an analogy. This is my favorite. 
different. Yeah. Because it'll help people out there who are trying to figure out what is this craziness. I consider us, you know, I, I tell people, I said, think of it. We're like the, the national public radio, the NPR of affordable housing. Fair deal. You got all these great affiliates that are local. Who doesn't know their own local affiliate? KQED. I mean, really. Do right. I give money to KQED? Absolutely, I give money to KQED. And I, uh, and I relate to them. They are my, they're my people. But they have, but then, then there's National Public Radio, NPR. And I also relate to the National. And the National provides this great platform for bringing really fabulous national programming right. to the local community. And the local community also brings fabulous programming that they push up and they spread out. That's, you know, that, that's, that's our idea. That we want the best of both. I've always said I want the best of both. you got to have the local. It's the business we're in. Um, and at the same time, we want to take advantage of any national heft we can bring to the, to the work. Uh-huh. And give examples of the national heft. What, where does size and scale allow you to play more effectively, both locally and uh, across the cer- board? Certainly in financing. I uh-huh. mean, let's face it, um, the fact that we can bring the whole organization to stand behind um, our transactions as opposed right. to a single little piece of the organization, that's one thing. Um, you know, if you're a bank and you're looking for CRA, um, we've got a lot to offer you because we're in a lot of markets. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's a huge benefit. Um, we're, you know, we have one property management company, and that property management company works across all these different markets. Uh-huh. And so that is really important because, boy, you sure don't want to um, replicate um, the drudgery of property management systems oh, dr- over and over dr- again. Uh, well, drudgery. I'm just thinking, you know, there's a lot of systems you have to put in place. You know, that's not always so much fun, but it's necessary. And you sure don't want to repeat that, you know, in every single market over and over and over again. You really want to get that right. And and to do it um, in a way that you're going to take advantage of mm-hmm. of those systems, you know, I don't mean drudgery in a negative way. I just mean it's repetitive. It's very Repeti- repetitive. I've never heard the word drudgery used in a non-negative fashion, but <laughs> we'll take this as the first time. Although it's really interesting because it's one of my my areas of fascination, and it will be. It's been on other podcasts, and uh, but you know that particularly the apartment reads. They have solved the problem or they have addressed the problem of property management and operations and technology and the benefits of size and scale. Yeah. I and mean, it, that, it dwarfs you guys, right? This is like four or five times as exactly. big as you are, but it, it has mattered and transformed the business. Well, so. I, you know, I, I'm so um, hypersensitive to the question, you know. Uh, compliance. Now, if you don't think that's drudgery, that's um, good. That's okay. See, that's a drudgery. I, I think of so much of what they have to do is really focused on. We got to get this right, and the compliance. We got to understand it. We have to do it the same way. We, you know, there's that. And compliance for the those who don't know, because you're using the tax credit, which is a government program, or any HUD program. You forget just, forget tax credits. We had compliance before tax credit. You got to paint within the lines, and if that's you paint right. outside the lines, you're in trouble. Ugh. You're in big trouble. And unfortunately, you have to spend because property management should be about human Sur- service, yeah, and human service to people, and people, and that like focus on that. Don't yeah. spend that. Compliance is not about service to people. Yeah, I bet. so that gets to another point about your organization and what makes these, what makes a difference, which is the holistic services to people. So talk about that, and and I'm curious because we, the government, supports housing for low income people and people in poverty. Housing's the first step, but without the other steps, it 
doesn't necessarily go further. Right. So I, I get, it really goes back to our um, our beginnings. Yeah. So when Mercy was uh, Mercy Housing was formed, it was formed in a response to um, the fact that people living in really substandard housing were mm-hmm. getting a raw deal from their landlord right. and were being evicted and were living in terrible conditions and weren't being given any support. So the sisters, when they saw that, and it was in Omaha, mm-hmm. I mean, of all places, saw that, decided, you know, we've done all these other things. We've, you know, s- lots of systems, health systems, education. We can we can do this and we can do it better than what we're seeing um the folks that were serving in other capacities, right. what they're experiencing. So they they launched into it, and their idea was not necessarily to mass this big pile of real estate. That wasn't it. The idea was, how can we support these individuals who find themselves in these, in these terrible conditions and in these situations? It was all about the support of, of right. families, in large part families, women with kids. And so that's how it started. And then they really quickly figured out that if they couldn't control the housing you know, and the conditions in the housing, then they really didn't have you know, any ability to control the, the, you know, what that outcome was. And so they launched into housing. But service to folks was first and foremost. So we've always had a service bent. You know, it's like, how do, you, how do you stabilize people so that then you can help them access all the other benefits, whether that be education, health care, recreation, good jobs, whatever kind of support people needed mm-hmm. in order to do what all the rest of us um, are, are trying to do, which is to just have a, 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 you know, a quality life, especially a quality life for our kids. So that's how they started. So when we started working in this area more I won't say globally, but more, you know, brought more broadly in various places. It was really clear that the services, that's that's kind of the heart and soul. It drives, it drives who we are in so many ways, um, and that's why the local is so important. Because you know how you deliver a service in a property in San Francisco is very different than how you would you know, deliver that same service, even in Sacramento, or certainly in Atlanta, or anywhere. It's all very, very locally um, controlled. The services are, you know, the dollars to support those services are local. The resources out in the community are local. How you put that all together is probably also different, whether it's development, mentally disabled, or seniors, oh, or absolutely. families, That's or right. homeless. That's right. And every single example, you know, we partner Enormous amounts of partnerships, especially. I mean, if you're looking at uh, services to the developmentally disabled, we're not we're not a service uh, organization to that population of people right. who have a very specific need. No, we'll partner with somebody, and in this case here in San Francisco, we're partnering with the Arc, who are actually delivering the service, um, and we're owning the real estate. And but in some other cases, we do deliver the service directly. For instance, in Chicago, in our whole portfolio of Special needs housing for people that are formerly homeless. We we you know house folks, and we have the whole cohort of support um, folks that deliver service to that population that allows them then to maintain their housing. Mm-hmm. So there's any number of things, but but the service piece is really critical to who we've been forever, and um, and it's not a question of should we do this or can we afford this. There's always a question of can we afford this, and then we figure out how to afford it. And we do a lot of fundraising around it, and I always have. 
Are you able to keep discipline to separate what property management means versus what service enriched means? Because they're two different things. And if you mix them up, then you may lose some of the, again, the discipline of the drudgery. Right. I hate that word. But- <laughs> And and for all of those Mercy Housing people that might be listening to this, I do not think your jobs are drudgery. (laughs) Um, Yes, the discipline is important. You want that approach. So property management needs to have the discipline of understanding how do you run a property and how do you do it, you know, how do you make sure the systems are in place so that the the um, windows get washed and the place stays clean and we collect the rents and we meet all of our obligations. And then at the same time, how do you do this in a way that supports families, supports individuals, shows compassion, helps people solve problems? So it's it's some of both. I mean, you have to have a culture around service, which is, you know, from both sides. And then people have to understand... um, you know they don't want to enable in a negative way, and at the same, you know, you know, you got to have boundaries. There's it. There's a lot to it. There's a lot of training involved. But the idea is not that the property management folks drive the hard line, and the resident services folks are always the nice people. That's not it at all. It really is a blend. And when it really works, you know, the fact that the service, the folks that are providing services on site with right. the property management folks who also provide services on site are seamless and work together in a seamless way. And it is magic. When you see that happen, man, it's magic. And you can see uh, such a quality of living right. in that kind of an environment that it just makes, it just gives you chills. In- interesting question in terms of the nonprofit housing sector. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I, I read a book in college called Small is Beautiful. And right after I was in college was when all the local community development corporations started getting s- set up in every community and they, a thousand flowers bloomed to mix metaphors and there was a CDC in every corner and every block and every right. neighborhood. And they all had a little fence around their space. Yeah. And probably none of them had size and scale that you're talking about. And so now 40 years later, we're at a place that probably some of those organizations need help by organizations like yours. Mm-hmm. Do you, you, and you have done some consolidation or roll-ups of organizations. Do you see that as a continued trend in your part of the business? Yeah, certainly consolidation. I don't think we're ever going to not see consolidation. And, Uh and, you know, it's a a fact of life when it makes sense. Um, But do I see the need for um, local as well? Yeah, I do. I I just, I mean, local maybe isn't every corner. Maybe local is, you know, one city in some cases. So I don't think everybody needs to be um, large. There's, I don't think there's one uh, one model. Uh-huh. I really don't think there's a single model. I think there needs to be more than one model of how we deliver this. I do believe that there is a really serious need for um, for a local focus and local involvement, and some in, in this work. In right. because we're not we're not we're not housing developers in the same sense as you think about just an organization that's out there looking to create build a building and fill it with people so that they can and you know do whatever you're going to that's not what that's not really the fundamentals of our business i mean we have to do that but we're in a business that really is um that 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 really uses so many more resources from our local in order to make it work right understood yeah so i i think that um we spend a lot of time um, working with other local organizations in places where we work. So, for instance, 
we might go into a city in a state where we're not, um, you know, maybe we're sitting in Atlanta, but we're going to do something way outside. The idea would be, in many cases, that we that we partner with a local organization who can bring who can bring that as well. That's another way to do it, as opposed right. to absorbing them all. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of a PC way to probably answer this question, but I don't. I really do not believe that consolidation is the answer to everything. Uh, clearly isn't. It, yeah. well, the question, though, it's just interesting because, you know, we do work in the for-profit sector and in the nonprofit sector, and for-profits reach size and scale, and they may have a property management company that does 30, 40, 50,000 units. And some of the nonprofits do a thousand, two thousand. Yeah, Mom it's and hard. pops do the same. It's a little hard to sustain at that level. It doesn't you can't afford to buy into the technology and some yep. of the economies that you know you guys like you have to offer. Well, and it, it's worse. I mean, I think you do get to a size where for a while you can hold that. I used to refer to it as you can hold it in the palm of your hand. Right. That whole company, you can hold it in the palm of your hand, and then all of a sudden, uh-huh. it gets to something where, oh, this isn't in the palm of my hand anymore, and I really now I got to invest, but I don't have anything to, in, I don't have any money to invest with. That's right. when it becomes a critical issue as to you either stay small or you think of a different way in which to do your business. Right. So w- when we started the conversation, you know, I mentioned that housing affordability is in the headlines as it's never been before. So let's talk a little bit about that and the and, and maybe about the policy environment as well. But what we read about is less about we read about homelessness. We read about the subsidies in what you guys do, but we read a whole lot about housing for what's called the workforce and that that's not affordable particularly in our bigger cities but as all, all cities are urbanizing right now. And so how do you see that continuum of need, maybe from homelessness to low-income people to moderate-income people, and how does that get solved, particularly the moderate-income part, which has never been subsidized, but it might need something to enable it to work? How, how does all this get addressed? Well, I mean, you know, there's no lack of effort to try to figure out how to address this, what I guess, you know, everything needs a definition, whatever we decide moderate is, and let's call it unregulated Fair deal. real estate. <clears throat> and there's a lot of effort that's going into trying to figure out how do we do that. Uh-huh. I, I think that the one of the really critical pieces is um, right-priced equity, which is a pretty tough thing to get your hands on. Um, you know, the the financing. And then for an organization like Mercy and or many others like us, understanding what that, we talked about this um, at length, understanding what that real estate, um, what the expectations for that real estate is and how it's different from what we're used to doing, which is, you know, below market rate, um, subsidized housing that serves a very low income population. I, I, I think you gotta you gotta have it all. You you have to do this. It needs to be done. I think that doing mixed income deals is a you know, it's not like it's a thing of the future. It's been going on forever. I mean, right. and, you know, way back. Deals, yeah, so. I mean, those things were happening in the seventies, um, but recognizing you know what's the blend and the mix that works financially. And how does that, uh, you know, how does that solve the problem? I, I mean, I think that this issue of, of um, people at sixty-one percent of AMI are kind of 
Out of luck. There, yeah. I mean, so, <laughs> it's, a, it's the worst income you could ever make in your entire life. You, Is that extra dollar? Yeah, you have. Yeah, exactly. You have no access to any kind of resource, and on either end, you know. So, I don't. I, if I had the answer to this, you know, I'd be, I'd be magic. And I don't. Th- I just think it's. Uh, and we're trying. We're trying desperately to figure out how to, f- how to get a financing mechanism that will actually get us into the marketplace in a way that where we can actually capture some of, of, of that housing and make it work. It's not easy. It's very difficult to do on a ground-up basis right. because the cost of construction and the cost of doing a, a deal, land and construction, just puts everything, you know, you're either subsidized or you're, or you're high-end. It's, very, it's a barbell problem. So in San yeah, Francisco, that's people right. are building subsidized housing for an ungodly amount of money, which yeah, we won't say on the, exactly. on, on the podcast, and then or luxury. That's but right. Nothing. nothing in between. So so then the question is, how do you actually acquire something that you might be able to keep in that in that space? And and you know, that what we are fondly referring to in the world of, of housing these days as NOAA, naturally occurring affordable housing. Uh-huh. How do you do that? It's not so simple. We're you know, you'd think we could have cracked that nut. I mean, we have to some extent, but you know, I think what we found out over the last five, six years is how hard it is. More than Well, it's particularly hard in a world that's gentrifying. So, you know, when you started in this business, the cities were a place where low income people would could live and you could build yeah, high rises for low income right. people in the city. That's right. And the cities become popular, they gentrify, now you have a new problem. Yep. And then the naturally occurring affordable housing place that kind of middle, moderate-income people live in the cities become, well, I'm going to turn it and bring a wonderful yuppie person in there, which is just great. And even the suburbs. Right. You know, I mean, it's, you know, real estate is a very hot place to place money. So there's a lot of of money looking for a place to go. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it has to do with it's just this overheated real estate market. I mean, it's complicated, but... um, but I, you know, but then aren't most things in this industry? Real estate's not a simple, a, right. a simple business. I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think that there are uh, a lot of people working at it, and um, and I think one of the things we've found is that if there are people on the selling side who are interested in um, in selling to an organization or a, an entity that wants to preserve because they've become attached potentially to right. those residents living in those properties, those you can make happen. We can figure that out. Um, it's when you're up against um, a tight market with a lot of competition and um, and the desire to you know fast close, that's when it's really tough. I, I'm a, I should know the answer to this. I'm assuming there's no tax subsidy for I sell you a property instead of the other guy and because you're a nonprofit, no, only, for the differential price, I get the differential you know, break. Sometimes there's some state... Um, you know, benefit to some kind of crazy little um, tax gimmick that a state will do. I mean, right. there's a there's a donation tax credit in Illinois that sometimes you can work into this if you're you know if you can get an appraisal for higher than what it is you've agreed to sell it for, and you can take right. that. Any number of things like that, but it but generally no doesn't doesn't bridge the gap. You know, it's just usually there are a lot of people out there. Are, Theoretically, a lot of people out there who really would like to sell their portfolio and/or their property, right? Um, and are and, and to the right seller might be willing to take not the highest, not the highest value, but you know you got to find them and you got to match them up with the not-for-profit but, that's ready to act. That's the hard right. part. And this is a place that the nonprofit housing sector hasn't played because you've played it 
go get the subsidy, build new, while these properties that are to your same target income audience are trading hands every day and then slowly or quickly going up the I, I would say that, that it's hard to um, find those opportunities at the moment in time that the not-for-profit has the resources ready to move and that the seller has, you know, it's just, it's hard to match that up. It's it's just really tough to match that up. And it happens periodically, but it's random. I also think uh, over time is that the the clock speed at which you're used to doing transactions is the clock speed of getting a hold of a site to which you will attach the tax credit. That's a relatively long burn, long fuse deal. Yep. And if there's a property for sale and it's going to get bids on it in 60 days. Yeah, it's hard hard to pull the trigger. Even if you've got the money. Right. Different game. Yes. And hard hard to um, pull the trigger and do all the due diligence. And you're used to having lots of opportunity to look and figure it out and do the due diligence and deal with the neighbors that might be, you know, coming out of the woodwork and blah, blah, blah. It's, uh, it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely more risky. Yeah. So through the conversation, we've talked about kind of, we've touched on federal policy. Um, we've touched on the tax credit having its 30, 31 year anniversary. And actually maybe the tax credit just got expanded somewhat, but what's the, in part, what does the future look like for your business? And what are the threats and opportunities that come up based on what's happening in Washington? That's a pretty big question. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say that the future, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I would bet that if we um, surveyed your audience— which are primarily real estate people, yep. you would find that 95% of us are um, optimistic people. <laughs> Let's stick there. I like that one. It's true. Yeah. I mean, you, you sort have of to have be. to be. And, you know, it's like you're looking for opportunity, and opportunity is what you're after. And opportunity is, you know, is, uh, you know, it's optimism. So um, I, I always see um, the future as being an exciting potentially, and no matter what, we're going to figure out how to make it work. And, you know, you look at the history. I've been in this business, you know, for over 30 years. You know, you you just adjust. You adjust. You adapt. It's died You've, a thousand deaths, but yes, it hasn't died. Yes, you figure it out. You figure out. You know, all right. You know, there's it's a never-say-die kind of business. You will figure it out. And, and, and we do. We figure right. it out. We do something to figure it out. You know, we just had this major shift in administrations, and there were people who thought that the world had come to an end, in, especially in terms of housing and resources for housing. And we just right. passed an incredible bill, the 2018 Omnibus Bill, just put you know almost 10% increase in resources to housing. I mean, it's just stunning. It's stunning. That's better than we've done in the last eight years. So... Um, I will continue to be an optimist about um, the future, and I believe that uh, it's never going to be easy. I don't, I don't for a minute. And I think that the issues around poverty and people in need, th- those are daunting, daunting issues. But if the question is, how will Mercy Housing do? I mean, we're we're become, we're, you know, we're more needed than ever along right. with all the rest of my colleague organizations. And so really putting our nose to the grindstone and making sure that we continue to 
use those resources in the best way possible and and um, and provide the resources to people. I mean, that's you know, I, I'm I'm very optimistic about our ability to do that. Um, and we've you know, I think we've gotten stronger and better over the years, and that you know, we've learned from a lot of mistakes. Um, and we'll continue to make mistakes, but you know the name of the game is you got to learn from those mistakes as opposed to just wallow in them. So um, and you know based on the you know sort of tenacity and spirit of the sisters, you know they don't they don't worry about mistakes and they don't worry you know you can lose some money if you have to and you do have to in this business. Sure. Um, and so it, you know it's not the end of the world. It's you know we got to we got to keep moving. So my feeling about the future is positive in that regard. You know, the po- I think that the policy opportunities, this uh, it, the 2016 elections woke a lot of people up, and I believe that um, there was a lot of complacency in in our just in prior, general prior to the election. Yes, prior to the election. Not, I don't mean that people were uninterested at all, but it was sort of like there wasn't any burning issue. It was, you know, and and I think it it woke us up to uh, some burning issues. And people are focused. They're focused. They're driven. You see it in, in all sorts of areas. And right. I think that's that's really good. People are re-engaging in a way um, that needed to happen, especially um, the younger cohort in our business. Um, and and I'm I'm really energized by that. I just think it's fabulous, and I think that um, it, it's needed. And and I think that this last um, insurgence of of support for housing uh, in the in the budget is is a byproduct of that. I mean, and I think that there will be more. So from my perspective, recognizing that we have serious work to do around these issues, as opposed to thinking that the policymakers, now I don't mean to suggest that we ever really thought the policymakers would do all the work, right. but there was less willingness to really push the envelope in the last administration than there is now, obviously. And so I just think that that, that renewed focus is a good thing. Uh-huh. It's a really good thing. So you think the last administration, it was going to get done so you didn't have to push. You just, yeah, you just the, you just felt like, you know, we're all on the same side. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, give everybody gives everybody a break. And and so there's a less focus on, wow. Now, I'm not, I'm I'm overgeneralizing. I'm not suggesting right. this. But it is that urgency that creates um that creates the momentum, and mm-hmm. there is urgency. There's a feeling of urgency, and I, I just think it's been it's been good. Mm-hmm. Hey, question. We're, we're going to wrap up shortly, but I, I I read a book called The Color of Law, which you probably read. And I haven't read it, but, but I've been told many times I'm supposed to read it. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and so you think about that, and 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 where the government programs went was to concentrate poverty, government support for housing. And government support for low-income housing, and then government support for uh, suburban development through the VA and FHA pushed segregated populations and concentrated poverty in lots of respects. And urban renewal did the same to maybe wonderful, what felt like slums, but were wonderful neighborhoods, thinking of Jane Jacobs and all that. So Mm -hmm. best intentions have done some tough things in your space. How do you look forward to the next 30, 40 years and say the things that we're doing today will 
improve the fabric of communities, we'll improve the lives of these mm. people, and we'll do it better, smarter, I don't know the right words, but any comments on that? Well, <laughs> that's a pretty... Um, I, sorry. Yeah, it's a hot <laughs> Once topic. Again. It's a hot topic. I mean, it, you know, it, there's so, it, you know, you there's two sides to all of this, as right. you well know. I mean, I, you know, we're doing redevelopment in Sunnydale, mm-hmm. which is one of the most impoverished neighborhoods, public housing, really impoverished, terrible conditions right. in San Francisco. And, you know, if you just talk to the average person on the street, they think everybody living in Sunnydale are a bunch of awful right. people uh-huh. that are violent, et cetera, et cetera, because so much bad stuff happens in their neighborhood. Well, the fact of the matter is the people living at Sunnydale, there's a vibrant Mm -hmm. supporting community there. I mean, they help each other out. You know, it's very different than what the external world would see. But they are living in abject poverty in an environment that is um, conducive to a lot of bad things happening for all sorts of reasons. And so it's so complicated because how do you how do you hold on to the fabric of that community? And there is a fabric there. And these folks, you know, we talk about building community. They could teach us right. about building community. I mean, that community of people, as functional mm-hmm. or dysfunctional as you want to think, right. they know how to build community. Um, and they support one another. And so how do you take that and help them you know, figure out, you know, how you make those good things happen in, in that neighborhood and at the same time get rid of the terrible conditions right. that are there and bring resources. I mean, folks have to travel multiple bus stops, transfers just to get good groceries. I mean, it's, it's you know, what they have to do in that neighborhood to survive is really tough. So I have a real hard time thinking that there's a one solution and a lot of people would like to go to a single solution. Can't be, right. And I just don't think there is a single solution to this stuff. And it's, um, and I'm also not the expert, I, but I do know that, um, you know, I've been surprised many times by my lack of knowledge. <laughs> I've been in this business. You'd be for, the expert. And I've been in this business <laughs> a very long time. And, and so, you know, we make assumptions, and those assumptions are often not correct. Right. And, um, and we also, uh, you know, so trying to figure out what's the real approach to solving some of these serious neighborhood problems, like a Sunnydale, which right. the people living there would say, we have a serious problem in this neighborhood. Uh-huh. Um, how you solve that, we've been there almost 15 years. Right. 15 years of investment in that community. We have barely scratch the surface. And so I'm, I'm very humbled by, by uh, the problem. I believe that um, if we can do this right, it will be the most profoundly impactful thing we will have ever done. And it will be the most, uh, you know, uh, and we will be more humbled by it and the people, and we won't do it because we're doing it. You know, this, is, this will be a, a true partnership and we will learn way more from the people living in Sunnydale than we will ever teach the people living in Sunnydale. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth. That's the truth. And so it's like understanding that and how that plays into this. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's uh, I, you know, we'll make mistakes. 
I don't think that, uh, and it's really hard because sometimes you don't know what the um, end result of, you know, you do something and you think it has a, it's going to have this end result and and it has an an entirely different result. And it's just, um, it's tough to be able to see that stuff into the future. Well, that's what you've done through your career, unintended consequences are scary and dangerous, but you're yeah, going to take risks. Yeah, but you got to do it something. anyway. You have to do it anyway. And the big thing, yeah, the thing that I would say is, you know, you need to celebrate um, your mistakes. It's, uh, to me, that's the most important thing any of us in this business or any business, quite frankly. You learn way more from your mistakes than you ever do from anything you ever did right. And if you refuse to learn to admit them, admit right. them publicly and talk about what you learned. I mean, that is the most important thing a leader, certainly in community development and affordable housing can do, I would, uh, I would assume in any other, but that is a huge, right. huge and really important thing. Um, we it, should have a conference. The next yeah. affordable housing conference yeah, should be spill out, mistakes. Spill Let's out the just worst, talk the about worst the wor- thing you ever did. <laughs> and how, yeah, I mean, that's, that's totally it, true. it builds character as well as, um, and, it, and it makes you just better. I couldn't agree more. So last question. I asked this question to everybody. If you had a piece of advice for a young person getting into their career, want to do something in real estate, what would you say? If they want to do something in real estate? Mm-hmm. Could be your part of real estate, yeah. so let's take them there. But well, I I think that um, you know obviously I make a plug for affordable housing. It's the greatest thing in the world because while you're while you're doing something that is incredibly stimulating from a business perspective, it, it's it just as stimulating from um, you know the social impact perspective. So right. you know you get the best of both worlds. But what I would really tell any young person. Um, and I tell them this all the time, that's really trying to figure out, you know, where is my career going and what should I be doing? Um, I, I, I always say, you, you know, allow yourself to be pulled towards your strengths. Mm-hmm. Uh, build on your strengths. Don't, don't pick out something that you're not any good at or that you wish you were good at but you probably aren't and spend the rest of your career butting your head up against the wall. <laughs> Spend your time allowing yourself to be pulled in the direction of your strengths. And then, I love it. And then yeah. build on those because that's where it's going to – that's where your passion is. That's what you're good at. You can't be good at everything. Be okay about the fact you're not going to be good at everything. Just build on your strengths. I love it. It's funny. When I, when I talk to people, which I get to do as a recruiter all the time on this subject, I don't know that you know what your strengths are when you get started. So it's that trial and error, and as you said a minute ago, celebrate your failures. Go well. I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them, but I really am one of those. And yeah, and play it hard. But most of the time, if you listen to you know what gives you energy and what are you actually good at, and uh-huh. what are people re- respond when, when they're responding to you, what are they responding? Right. Uh, you know that's what you're good at, and and it it you know you you probably kind of know inside. Mm-hmm. You might be trying to buck it because you're thinking you ought to be something else and who knows for what reason, but but you really, you know, allow yourself to be pulled in that direction and don't fight it. Let yourself go there as opposed to fighting it. And I think that's, and oftentimes we're fighting it because our parents have got another idea for us. <laughs> um, but you really got to, you know, got to listen to that inner self. Totally agree. This is great. Great advice. Great talk. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you, Matt. Very fun. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices. If you like the episode, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to comment via our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or to me at matt at Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.